Ebb and flow inspires persistence and determination during the rhythmical patterns of decline and regrowth in life. Each episode, I bring on an inspiring and influential voices who are here to help us stand strong and walk through the ebb moments of life and propel us to the peak of our health, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, so we can live our life in the flow, individually and collectively. This includes strategies, habits, routines, focus tricks, questions, and much more that we can use to live our life in the best way in order to maximize our service to others. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you're as excited for the Ebb and Flow podcast as I am, but to make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe now on any stream, check out YouTube, or visit SolomonEzra.com to learn more. Over one year ago, I really started diving into psychology, health and wellness, personal development, philosophy, and much, much more, all of which included reading several books and listening to many different videos and podcasts that included very interesting similarities and teachings on principles, habit habit formation, mindfulness, the self, and much more. And being born in a Jewish family and having a strong Jewish background, I have always been interested in merging the popular contemporary teachings with where they perhaps first started in ancient Jewish texts or teachings. One of the books this led me to was The Practical Kabbalah by Rabbi Label Wolf. And right before the Jewish New Year of Rosh Hashanah, I got to speak with the author himself about his background and the teachings he is spreading by speaking with his company, Spirit Grow, some similarities and contrast between Eastern mysticism and Jewish mysticism, the beauty in the teachings of the Rebbe, meditation and how it can be used, and much more. My personal favorite is the radical teaching that we have 100% free will to be able to override our so-called genetic predisposition, which is also a popular thought in the emerging fields and the emerging fields, excuse me, of information biology, epigenetics, and the like. Unfortunately, in this uh, podcast episode, the connection breaks up quite a bit, but I hope you stick it out and catch some really great insights. Also, the show notes will be available on this podcast episode on my site. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful start to the new year 5780. How are you today? Thank God. Very well. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. And I love the book collection. It's uh, a... It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you after reading your book, and I'm I'm very grateful to for you to make the time uh, to speak with me. I'm very I'm very passionate about the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, and you know all this kind of stuff you've been writing about. So it's it's right. It's a it's a true honor. Thank you. So um, I I mean I'm. Thank you for joining again. Um, I'd love to hear a background about yourself, Rabbi, like uh, where you're from, how you really got into, you know, Hasidic psychology and the Kabbalah and the teachings and, you know, your, your stories of meeting the Rebbe, as you explained in the book, he was a, became a master of yours. And, you know, I, can, I tell guests that I like to have on, I can read so much about kind of a background of, about the guest or the leader that I love talking with online, but it's not the same as when I'm having a conversation and learning it from them themselves. Certainly. So um, I was born in Poland, in Krakow, 
1947. I was born on a kitchen table, not in a hospital because my parents didn't have a strong positive view of hospital conditions in Poland straight after the war. Mm-hmm. My parents uh, are both Holocaust survivors. Uh, my father at the age of 16, uh, unfortunately witnessed the uh, execution of his parents and siblings in, and that was right in front of his eyes uh, by a Nazi officer. And he managed to escape and he was a partisan in the forests for the duration of the war and miraculously survived. Um, my mother was uh, hidden in the loft of a farmhouse. Um, the loft was actually an attic space of about two feet high. So they had to pretty much lie prone throughout the period of, uh, uh, that she was hidden there as such. Um, and they emigrated to Australia in 49. Uh, that's where I've been raised. So since the age of two, I've been here in Australia, basically. My education has been here. Um, my father was a Radomska Hasid uh, from the Hasidic tradition uh, in Poland. Uh, but here in Australia, there wasn't any remains of Radomsk, which was destroyed by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And Lubavitch was starting up. And so he gravitated towards Chabad, Lubavitch, as a place which was close to his heart in the style of uh, community. And I was therefore raised with that influence as such. Um, I finished uh, my schooling here in a Jewish day school, um, went on to university. And while at university, I also went to the rabbinical college here in Melbourne at the same time. Um, I married at the end of uh, my university studies, continued my Jewish studies for another year, and then uh, began to enter into a law uh, practice. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who I'd been communicating with for uh, quite some time, um, out of the blue, asked me if I would be prepared to go to the United States and work with university students. And this was quite a surprising uh, invitation. The Rebbe was, uh, doesn't, didn't give direct orders. The Rebbe was always uh, very gentlemanly, the way that uh, he proposed the shlichus in those days. Uh, and uh, therefore, that, that invitation, in effect, was a marching order. But so my wife and I took it on for a year, and that one year extended to several years. I began at the University of Wisconsin in Madison for some years. Uh, working with Jewish students there while teaching um, at the university. And then I moved to, was shifted to Hofstra University in uh, Long Island, New York for several years, and then came back to Australia and continued working at universities with Jewish students here in Australia for another six, seven years. And that was my formative uh, um, career path. At which point um, I always had a dream of trying to share with people, teaching how to merge um, the field of, the emerging field of positive psychology and Jewish spiritual teachings. And so on creating a number of lectures along those lines, took it on the road, became very successful, 
And so ever since then, for the last 35 years plus, I've been uh, traveling several times a year to about 50, 60 cities a year, um, sharing, teaching, lecturing in all sorts of different places, varying from uh, ashrams, centers, clubs, primary, etc. And the final little uh, uh, episode began about or 12 years ago when I began a center here in Australia um, on personal growth and development. And one of my sons joined me in that endeavor and is now the director of that center called Spirit Grow, where we primarily um, teach four areas of life. Um, spirituality with a small s, which encompasses anything from meditation, mindfulness, uh, green environment, ecological consideration, uh, kindness to animals and what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and the other areas are um, relationship enrichment, um, making the world a better place in the way we relate to each other, uh, personal health and wellness, uh, the area of what we can do in terms of maintaining the body so that the soul flows yeah. more optimally through it, etc., and management, managing time, managing people, um, time management. So these are the four areas we concentrate at the center using Jewish spiritual teachings in conjunction with contemporary research in order to share with people. And that in a nutshell is me. Okay. Well, awesome. Thank you for that rundown. You mentioned a lot of things in, in your wonderful introduction that I want to, you know, have multiple conversations about. Uh, like when you mentioned you've had the honor to speak at different, um, ashrams like I'll, i want to make kind of like a bookmark on these like um and and in the book i love one of the things i'm talking about as well is as you mentioned with your um um it just the name stopped out of me but um in you and your son started the kind spirit of growth thank you, spirit grow thank you very much and one of the one of the areas i'm really passionate about is the the physical like the mind body soul um kind of fitness and then raising the the physical like the you know treating the body well so that you know as a means to you know when your body's feeling good your mind is clear and then therefore you're able to you know learn more of the the fundamental truths and be closer to Hashem. Um, sure. One another thing I love is a lot of what's really popular in um, I guess not so the religious pop i guess you could call it pop psychology but um so i'm i didn't grow up very orthodox jewish um but i love learning about the different um teachings uh in judaism and then relating it to you know what's popular in the personal development world nowadays is like pop psychology which is positive psychology and you know eastern kind of mysticism and teachings such as you know, you could say chakra healings or meditation. And because Judaism is very passionate to me, I love correlating those because there's always fun, there's fundamental truths come from somewhere. And so when you mentioned how you've been had the honor to speak at ashrams, you also talk about in the book, The Practical Kabbalah, you know, how Abraham had sons and he sent to the East, I believe, and he actually safeguarded from Isaac. And how like ashram is actually a, a different form of 
Asherim. Um, so that's, those are a couple of the areas that I, I'd love to dive into. But first, I'd really love to hear more about your, how you got introduced to um, what you could say positive psychology and how you got introduced to the Rebbe, because I've also heard and read, it, you know, it's, it's, he was so busy. I mean, I don't think he would call it busy because he absolutely loved what he did meeting with people. But to be able to get a meeting with him or to meet with him as you did, and to him to suggest or kind of, as you said, he wasn't telling you, but it was like it came off in such a, an inviting kind of way. How did you, how did you get really introduced to all those concepts to mm -hmm. the point where you understood, wow, this stuff is true and all that other stuff I should stay away from? And uh, okay. um, I, know I threw a lot at you right there, but uh, I also like fine. the bookmark. Fine. Let's begin in this way. The body is a very important facilitator for the essence of the person to express through. The body is the physiological mechanism it's the physiological machinery that facilitates the flow of consciousness mm -hmm. through it. So, for example, should God forbid a person die, um, five seconds after they die, if you wanted to test their eyesight, they wouldn't be seeing. Now, why is that? Five seconds before they died, they could see and five seconds after they died, they, the body hasn't decomposed yet. So the short answer is that at that moment with the physiology of the body, but the energy that flows through the body, which is the essence of personality, which is the essence of the person's being, has removed itself from the body as such. So we know that we are a duality of, let's call it soul and body, or energy flow and body, whatever a person is comfortable with. And therefore, in Jewish tradition, it's a mitzvah, an absolute uh, uh, imperative that we keep the body well and healthy because it becomes the mechanism of expressing yourself. And your soul has been reincarnated into the universe because your essence has something to contribute to the world in that moment which no other soul can every soul has its particular giftedness and that's why it's reincarnated back and therefore we have to make sure that there's optimal expression so that's the first thing to maintain well health fitness of the body as such um, then there's the uh, question of how, what do we emphasize in life so there's a lot of um, tendencies to, for people today to focus on body fitness. Now, at the expense of spiritual well-being. In other words, they uh, allow the technology to work well, but how do they actually allow their inner self to be able to be developed to a point where they express in the world optimally as such? So that's what we mean in terms of expansion of the mind, expansion of the heart, figuratively speaking. Um, 
So when we speak in Eastern traditions of healing practices based on say the chakras and the system of uh, energetic flows through the body, that may well be very important to understand the nature of the body and it works as acupuncture certainly demonstrates. Mm -hmm. um, yet in Judaism, we have a different approach to wellness and healing. It is not just the technology of the body, but it's the aptitudes of the soul to be able to express through the soul and body. So we emphasize sefirot rather than chakras. Sefirot means the spiritual aptitudes of the uh, soul to, ex to express through the body. So for health and wellness, for example, it's very, very important to create an ambiance of positivity, um, hence the association with positive psychology. And that ambiance of positivity provides a certain flavor to the way in which the neshama, the soul, approaches the flow through the body. If we can understand that, then we're healing ourselves at the very core not just at the technological side of body per se, which the chakras tend to emphasize, but much more so at the very spiritual level, which begins the very process of flowing into the body. So that's just a loose comparative uh, 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 introduction to that kind of a nature. So how, your question, how did I get started? Uh, introduced to uh, the Rebbe and the Hasidic teachings uh, which um, when you're raised in the Chabad community and tradition, then you are automatically connected to the master, the Rebbe. You write to the Rebbe, the Rebbe responds to you, and your question as to where does the Rebbe have the time to do this, it's, it's not understandable. I, in the, for most of his um, leadership years, he probably slept three to four hours on average a night, and often two hours and often less. Uh, twice, if not three times a week, he would see people individually throughout the whole evening and night to very early hours of the morning. Daytime, he would spend study, directing traffic around the world, so to speak. Don't forget the river, uh, in, in his lifetime, had over 2,000 outposts. Uh, extensions of his being through uh, individuals and uh, institutions all around the world. And he was intimately involved with every single one of them. None of us did anything in our institutional life without consulting the Rebbe. So the Rebbe was very much involved. So yes, he was a superhuman individual. He was uh, uh, an amazing uh, human being. Um, very proper and correct and gentlemanly in every way. Never do we ever find the Rebbe with any overt fault in the way that he presented himself to the world and within his circles and the like. But most impressively was his absolute concern for every single individual. No one was less or more important and everyone was valuable and he had time for everybody no matter what. So, okay, that's an impression, and but then there were other things, and of course these things are difficult to talk about. His capacity to be prescient, even prophetic, his capacity to channel higher knowledge in such a way that um, it would be actually uh, brought down through teachings. For example, when he gave a discourse, uh, a mimer, then under those circumstances, 
um, he would have his eyes closed and he would be clearly in another place. In fact, those who knew, uh, knew that he was holding the, uh, his hand was holding earth himself. Otherwise his soul might not have returned to his body. So he had to hold on to something physical in order to be able to uh, 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 stay in this world. So there were superhuman and uh, um, ephemeral aspects about the Rebbe also. So when you were with the Rebbe, you knew that he saw through you, he knew your destiny, he knew your soul, and would advise you in your lifetime accordingly. So that's in terms of the Rebbe. And of course, when you're raised in a, a Chabad Hasidic background, you constantly from tender age, from bar mitzvah, certainly onwards, studying Jewish spirituality in a very formal way through the texts and the like. So my introduction was very, very early in the piece also. So that's overall a vantage point of my relationship with the Rebbe and how and my work and introduction to Hasidic teachings, that spiritual teachings, that brings me to uh, the point where I ended up studying psychology as well. And uh, as a consequence, I'm able to bridge the gap between the way that the Hasidic teachings describe the nature and motivation of human being and compare it to some of the contemporary vantage points of uh, psychological thinkers and practitioners. No, I love it. And at the beginning, you were mentioning the body as um, you were saying, look, our emotion is the human experience of the neshama flowing through all the physiology of the heart, well, like the body. Um, yes. And you were mentioning at the beginning when you started, you were saying that the 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 body is really kind of controlling. Well, mm -hmm. because in like psychology, we, in our formative years, we create a bunch of subconscious habits. And, and I think you talk about this in, in many of your talks and even in the book a little bit. But by the time we, you know, grow up, a lot of our habits are based on subconscious patterns and beliefs we made about some kind of situation when we're growing up. And, you know, whether it's, um, some it's usually i mean traumatic in in the highest form god forbid some kind of uh, death of a loved one to you know somebody just pushing you in the hallway because we're still such subconscious at the age before eight that we create that and then and then we recreate that as we grow up and so in a sense as you were talking about our body is what's really controlling our mind because we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And that's, that's a popular teaching that, I, that I'll I learn in like different, um, not yeah. just technology, but I think, yeah, so. I think we can probably embellish that a bit. Um, there are three primary influences that uh, psychology maintains, creates who we are at any time. They are our genetic makeup, uh, our genes, they are our environmental, cultural effects from the outside and our modeling from our parents and home environment. Mm -hmm. They're the three primary things, as Professor Simon 
Ben Shahar and others have pointed out in recent times over and over now. The debate within uh, philosophy and psychology is um, the way you put it yourself. Are these subconscious elements that remain fixated in our being and therefore we are prisoners of these factors and therefore have to try to express ourselves just assuming these are there. Now, our Jewish spiritual teachings say absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Even to the point that our genes don't imprison us in the proclivity or tendency in which the uh, genetic disposition would otherwise drive the person. That's what epigenetics is all about, correct? Correct, yeah. epigenetics. But what we're saying is we have sufficient quantum of free will to be able to override our genetic predisposition. Now, that's a radical statement. As you said correctly, if we aren't living mindfully, consciously, with awareness, with reflection, uh, introspection, and here we are recording this just before Rosh Hashanah, which is the period of profound reflection and consideration of self. So if we don't live in that deep conscious manner, then yes, we'll become habituated to the way that our um, genes drive us, so to speak. But if we can bring to the fore our consciousness and commitment and resolve to change that habitual pathway, then what we actually do is lay down through neuroplasticity different pathways in the brain to respond differently than our genes might otherwise by nature tend to uh, make us flow. And we can therefore become different. We can lay down new habits and adopt consciously directed approaches to responding to situations and life. So for example, if a person is by nature a highly emotional individual mm -hmm. and the emotions often get in the way of um, uh, um, positive and clear decision-making, um, the person can train to undo the balance of mind and emotion yeah. to a point where the, where the compass of the mind, the direction bearing of the mind, the true north of the mind, is able to guide the emotions more appropriately and therefore behave differently like in life, behave differently in interpersonal. Yeah. So all I'm saying here is that you can overcome all three tendencies, be they genetic, which I spoke about, I didn't spoken about home and cultural uh, circumstances and uh, etc. But all three can be overridden. So you are not a prisoner of anything, but you possess free will to express and become whoever you choose to be. That's one thing I, I love about the teachings. One thing, um, it also made me curious about, again, the, the, energy centers in our body compared with the sephira because now that made me curious okay i really love the idea of the sephirot beautiful why wouldn't they then though be actual energy centers in our body because then when we're when we know when we learn all of that we've just been talking about and how stress and other things get stuck in the different energy centers of our body it's the energy centers that if we become conscious of, and each one, you know, we have science 
to prove it as well now kind of has a brain of its own. So we have, there's, there's seven and then an eight and an eighth one above that be, thanks to that knowledge, we can, in a sense, and I'll also transition this to another area I'm passionate about, which is meditation and combining that with Jewish meditation. But the knowledge of the energy centers is how we can become aware of all those unconscious or subconscious. Okay. I get you. I get you. But I'm going to differ. Okay. The words energy or stuck are metaphorically utilized. Mm -hmm. When you use the word energy and I use the word energy, we're not really sure about what we're talking about. It's just a way that we can begin to grapple with intangibles that we haven't got clear physiological tools to measure as such. Now, of course, we can measure finite energies, alpha, beta, theta, but you can't measure chakras. Uh, you can't measure metaphoric use of the word energy. Um, and yet we use it because it's a very useful word and we understand what we're saying by using the word as such. So although it may well be that the model of the chakras is a very useful tool to understand, it's not the only way to understand the synthesis of the soul and the body. And Judaism uses a different approach when it uses spirot. Spirot are not chakras. A lot of people like to think that the Jewish equivalent of chakras is spirot. It's a totally different yeah. concept altogether. Um, what we're really saying is that at the source of the soul, the soul itself is a composite of 10 potentials. And these 10 potentials, three of them become expressed in mind process because they flow primarily through the brain in three different ways. And hence, we actually have three brain centers. Mm -hmm. And seven of them uh, become our emotional disposition once they flow But we have seven emotional dispositions. So the mental dispositions and the emotional dispositions ultimately become emotions. They only become emotions once we begin to express them. Now, if we, uh, just a, a segue for a moment, why we have this kind of model at all is because it's an analog of the cosmos as a whole. In other words, this analog of the 10 spirots flows through every aspect of creation in the spiritual spheres outside of humanity are also 10 spirots at all the parallel worlds, which are increasingly spiritualized, you have the analog of the 10 spirot. The human being is only the finite projection of these 10 spirots. But since we are living here in the sphere of time and space, then we have to deal with it in our human way. So we do. Now, when we talk about how, for example, do we allow ourselves to uh, uh, broaden, broaden our mind, what does that mean? So we say in the Sephirotic uh, sphere, there are three aptitudes. One, Chochna, is how do you give birth to a thought? <laughs> how do you pluck a thought out of what the Western psychologists will call the subconscious? The <laughs> word subconscious is simply another way of saying, I haven't got the faintest idea. 
and <laughs> it, there's no other clarity to it. But somewhere beneath our awareness, we draw a thought out. How do you think about that thought just a little while ago? Come from and like so. There's a mechanism called chokma, the first foremost sphere, which draws from say subconscious to conscious. Mm -hmm. Then you have a second one, bina, which mm -hmm. expands on it, develops it, creates idea, gives it shape, gives it a, a, a dimension. Uh, we call that uh, intellectualizing. We call that uh, a formation of a concept. Okay. Uh, whatever analysis. And then the third one is da'at, which means the way I focus it. Where do I balance these two tendencies? Anyway, I'm not going to go into details, but it's very interesting because in contemporary scientific study of the mind, we also now nominate that there are different ways in which the mind operates. You have non-linear, and then you have a uh, 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 central executive. Non-linear is creative. When you're lying on the beach, when you're lying on your bed and you're allowing a free flow of ideas. Um, that's Hochmer. That's creation of the concept and the idea, the birth of the thought. Central executive, they say, is like when we're problem solving. We're doing something uh, with our hands. We need to focus. That's binner uh, processing as such. Yeah. And that is implicit there. So it's very interesting how the Sephirotic model parallels a lot of the contemporary yeah. stuff that we're able to actually analyze on screen. And more complex, and I'll finish this little monologue here, yeah. more complex are the seven emotions, um, the seven emotional tendencies, of which only two are primary. And that is our giving and sharing and contributing, the outward flow from the body, Malfoy. and the equal and opposite, that's called chesed, and the equal and opposite called gavura, which actually is holding within, uh, withholding, restricting, etc. And we have both tendencies. And the question is how to be appropriate. Should I give this much money to charity or only this much? Or should I say no? Uh, should I share of myself and reveal myself in a loving way to this extent or only this extent? This is an interplay between chesed and gavura, which are then in the moment coalesced into a cogent emotion and you flow. Back through the mind. The mind shapes the emotion, or as we say, uh, the book of Tanya teaches that the mind shapes the emotions. So why am I saying all this? It's a totally different approach than chakras. You want to be able to enjoy health and wellness of the body, you need to have an idealized balance, firstly, of mind and emotion. You have to be able to train your mind to be able to achieve positive dispositions. You have to train your emotions for intelligence so that they're able to be appropriate in the balance. And in so doing and in passing, your body cellular operations become optimalized because of the optimization of the original spiritual flow. So it's a very different approach. I love the um, how they how it how the psychology you were saying now contemporary psychology really kind of complements it, or yes. it's it's a very big part of it. Um, yes. So jumping to the what you touched upon with a, a story of the Rebbe and how he, in a sense, would hold on to something physical that was really cool, and he would kind yeah. of, he would 
definitely, or I guess it's safe to, safe to say definitely, go to higher realms in the different Olomota worlds. We have mm -hmm. uh, Asiya, Yetzira, Baraya, and Atsilas. And then flowing through each of that, as you explain, is the Ein Sof, which is a metaphor for Hashem. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Um, when I was reading and listening about that, and I also want to tie this to Jewish meditation, and um, but my question is: Are the do we have? Um, do we know what exists in each of those realms? Do we have because? And this is also where the tying meditation comes in. And I've been practicing meditation for quite a while now. And so I'm curious. And I also started reading uh, Arie Kaplan's Jewish meditation book. And he's talking about how, you know, if sitting in meditation for a while, you start to see geometric patterns like kaleidoscope images. Is that a, a sense of being in a, a higher realm? Is it a sense of being a Yetzira or whatnot? You might not have the answer Yeah. First one first. Um, what inhabits the high realms? Um, this realm, which you and I are consciously in, is the realm of time and space. All the higher realms have no time and no space. That really makes it impossible for a human being to begin to imagine. Um, and yet, the three higher realms, each one is a quantum leap removed from the next. So if I say the next realm above us, which is Yitzirah, has no time and space, and then I say the one above it is a quantum leap removed, what does that really mean? If that one already has no time and space, then what's the next one all about? And yet there are uh, elements of godly um, emanation in the world. Now, the word angel has been uh, distorted in Christian teachings and primarily by the Renaissance painters as uh, a sort of a cherubic figures with wings uh, uh, that uh, fly around. Um, that's not a Jewish teaching at all. In fact, what they described and paint there are cherubs, kruvim, which are not angels in the slightest. It was a different phenomenon altogether, which sat on the Aaron in the temple, uh, figurines as such. Um, Angels, the word, Hebrew word for angel is malach, which means a spiritual energy, a messaging service. Uh, it's an interplay of forces. That's what an angel is in our Jewish spiritual teachings. So they have the function of connecting the different realms. So, for example, on Rosh Hashanah, we go to synagogue, we pray. What does that mean, we pray? We're enunciating um, energies as sounds. And these sounds have other containers, the words for our flow of mind and emotion, and is the way that our neshama expresses in a way that it becomes carried angelically between all the different realms, right up to the Ein Sof, as you correctly noted, which in turn reciprocates with a, the same messaging service all the way back down here. So there's a cause and an effect. So things happen in this world in response to our requests and our desires and our wishes, etc. So that's what's happening in the higher realms as such. Coming to your question of meditation, 
and how it might relate to what we've been saying. The word meditation is just the word. Um, it, it, if you consult Professor Google as to what is meditation, you'll get thousands of different uh, both definitions and styles and purposes, etc. The common denominator behind all meditation is focusing. But what you focus on, why you focus, how you focus, towards what end, that varies from spiritual pathway to spiritual pathway or non-spiritual intentions. Mindfulness training, focus on a sound or a word uh, or a, an image or an idea. And the purpose of that focusing technique is to relieve you of extraneous thoughts that might be stressors in your life. So you're de-stressing. That's a totally non-spiritual, if you will, methodology of meditating, but it's really just the focusing technique. In other uh, approaches, meditation is a method of focusing to gain insight, uh, as in Vipassana meditation, uh, uh, one of the Eastern approaches. Um, now, you mentioned Arya Kaplan. So Arya Kaplan was a phenomenal uh, researcher and writer, very prolific, a wonderful individual. And the book Jewish Meditation is a wonderful collage of esoterica in the form of meditation over Jewish history. And yet I don't advocate it at all. In fact, I don't think it's uh, neither useful and might even be distinctly not useful. The, um, what, what, what did you say might not be? Useful. Meditation. Th no, the book. The book. Okay. I only read a few pages because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Why? Not because it's inaccurate. Yeah. But what it collects, minority group activities by way of esoteric focusing. And the question is towards what end? What do you gain from it? Where does it take you, etc.? Uh, in fact, I've seen people practicing some of those meditative activities and become actually very confused and distorted in their lives as a consequence. Hmm. The Lubavitcher Rebbe advocated the use of meditation. In 1979, he said, it's important to take meditative practices that have been used in contemporary times uh, and a lot from the East, Indian, strip them of their idol worship elements, which become very harmful for the soul. And that's why there was, prior to the Rebbe's pronouncement, a lot of argument by rabbinical sources never to practice meditation, because the meditation that we've talked about in the 60s and 70s and 80s, where the word meditation became popular, was Eastern meditations with a lot of idol worship in it, which made it very harmful for the Jewish soul. But the Rebbe said there was also very remedial aspects of it, and we should take them and create a neutral form, a mm -hmm. secular form, for therapeutic purposes. The Rebbe said meditation in order to de-stress is a very important technique. And that's one function of meditation that we use in Judaism, in Chabad, certainly in order for health and wellness of the body by learning how to de-stress as a consequence of it. Interestingly, soon after the Rebbe gave that discourse, one of the, uh, uh, and he called for people around the world who were qualified to engage in creating a non-religious 
meditational approach. Dr. Herbert Benson uh, was one individual that uh, began that process and created what you and I know as the relaxation response mechanism. Very scientifically and has no Eastern overtones, is a very wonderful meditative practice in order to learn how to reduce anxiety and the like. Then to complete the discussion, there's one other form of Jewish meditation, which is very practical and important today, and that's Hisboninus meditation. And that means to study a piece of wisdom teaching, distill one element of that wisdom, spend time focusing on it meditatively to internalize it so it becomes part of your repertoire of behavior throughout the day. Hmm. And that's called Hisboninus meditation. Where, where does a lot of the, I guess, fear come from in the Jewish community around meditation? Is it <laughs> Siri wants to join. Is it, um, is it the idol worship idea? Yes, uh, that's where the, see, prior to the 60s, what happened in the late, mid-late 60s is some enterprising gurus made their way across from India to in, uh, Europe and the United States and introduced meditation for all sorts of reasons. But unfortunately, much of Indian meditation has um, aspects we call abodazara, elements of what we call uh, removal from our sense of godliness or commonly uh, termed idol worship aspects, uh, the use of godly names. For example, Transcendental Meditation, TM, a very useful method. But what the teachers never told you was that each of the mantras that they gave was a name of a Hindu deity, which for Hindus is great. For Jews is very not great. Um, because, and I can't go into it in detail here, but there are things which are good for the Jewish soul and things that are not good for the Jewish soul. Let me just segue and say, there's 71 different soul types in creation and each one has its pathway and each one has its contribution to make to the world. And the diet for each, spiritual diet for each of them is different. For the Jewish soul, therefore, it has its spirit. That's where you go on the to notion see, uh, of a Hindu deity. Is right? very bad. Can you hear? Me? Sorry again. I said unfortunately, unfortunately sometimes uh, yeah, yeah. connection has been kind of uh, interrupted. But you were mentioning the seven. That's okay. You were mentioning the 71 souls, and I remember in the book you were talking about um, you had a conversation with, uh, with Deepak Chopra, correct? And you were comparing it to, I don't remember the name of it, but the different kind of, uh, was it body types or something? Uh, I just, really I just, families huh? of souls. It's really more families of souls that we're talking about. 71 different families of souls, um, and each one has its function and role to play in the world as such. But each one therefore has to have its um, truth expressed in its own way to be true to its soul. So therefore, um, the need to be able to, for example, the manual which the Jewish soul was given to practice is, the, is known as the Torah. And therefore, when the Jewish soul 
through the body practices the mitzvot of the Torah, it expresses optimally and makes its contribution to the world. So uh, a question that came up is, you mentioned 71 different types of souls. And as a Jew, our neshama is different, not in a sense of greater than, of course not, but then my additional thought that I want to, I think they're complementary. I don't think it uh, has a disharmony, but there's also this sense of oneness and we are all one and created by the same oneness. So can you explain or touch a little bit yeah, more sure. on that? Absolutely. This yeah. idea of, of a Jewish soul mm. compared with a non-Jewish soul. Of, of course, we're not... Okay. Like, I, I know what you're getting at. But, like, but I've also, a lot of the new things that I'm learning about in the new biology, you could say epigenetics and, and using meditation as a sense of also what you touched upon, you know, healing matters, getting out of stress. Because in the meditation, then it ties back to what we touched about on the beginning, our subconscious patterns. Through meditation, we can gain that insight you, met, you mentioned to realize that you've been that we are the creators in a sense or co-creators of our reality so then in the meditation we can see which is also part of de-stressing because when you realize this it's so liberating but in the meditation then you can see wow i've created these different situations that's where that uh, that phrase you know everyone or everything you see is a mirror or reflection of yourself yeah so if non-jewish people are also learning and having that ability to be a hundred percent as uh, Judaism teaches a hundred percent free choice. Where's the real, what more does a Jewish soul, if that's the right question, the right way to phrase it, have? Because non-Jewish yeah. people are, are having you know, supernatural no, no. healing stuff as well. Okay. So, firstly, the uh, tension which uh, you enunciate between differentness and oneness. Mm -hmm. um, so, if you look around you, you'll probably see some thousands of separate items right now at this very moment, ranging from floors, ceiling, artwork, lamps, uh, hands, fingers, glass, uh, metal panels, Computer. How come, if everything is in a state of oneness, it appears so very different? So the short answer is that in this world of time and space, the oneness is uh, uh, split into many colors like the rainbow. And in other words, the drops of water are able to take the light and project it in these wondrous colors. Similarly, yeah. yeah, so similarly, the world of Asiya, which we live in, is a refraction of oneness into infinite possibilities. Now, having said that and knowing that doesn't free you from um, operating in a world of multifarious different elements of life. You have to operate with the separateness, not with the oneness. Uh, in other words, 
when you eat breakfast, you're taking something separate from you and you're putting it into your mouth. You don't simply say, oh, through osmosis, me and the food is the one, and now I can survive. In other words, yes, we are trapped in a world of separateness, pirud, as it's called in our spiritual teachings. That doesn't mean that we aren't aware that ultimately in the highest realms, everything will coalesce into a state of oneness. Mm -hmm. In an existential sense, we're not living there. We are purposefully living in a world of separation and we have to navigate and operate there. One of those aspects of separation is just like we have different animal species and we have different botanic species. We also have different human species mm -hmm. and the human, human beings have separated these species into many different kinds, whether you want to talk in terms of racial, cultural, uh, 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 geographical, etc. But we're in the spiritual. So the spiritual species is numbers 71, according to uh, the Jewish spiritual teachings. So the, the species is 71 species. And each one has a different way of survival and contribution. In the same way as the uh, uh, um, diet of a lion is very different than the diet of a giraffe, um, similarly is the spiritual diet of a Jewish person different from the other 70 different types as such. Now, there's nothing uh, uh, untoward about that. That's just, just in keeping with the nature of the world in which we live in. And therefore, that also applies to the spiritual food, so to speak, that we eat. And it just so happens that if we eat in a way that is inappropriate for the welfare of our soul, it'll hurt our soul. And Hindu deity idol worship happens to be something that hurts the soul. Now, your second part of the question. So meditation. So you're saying, okay, so if it's meditation, so meditation for a Jew, meditation for a non-Jew, etc. cetera, uh, why can't it all be same and similar? Because again, for the same reason that it's got a different function and purpose. There are meditations that are common to everybody. And the idea of having a meditation for de-stressing and health of the body is universal for mm -hmm. all people. And then there are meditative practices that are more specific to the kind of the soul. And then to the final point that you raised, um, and that is, well, isn't it good to delve subconsciously uh, through meditation to get a, a sense of your deeper self and thereby be able to express in a more appropriate way in life? You don't have to go through meditation into uh, that awareness you know full well yourself at a very conscious level what is good for you and not good for you. You don't have to make that discovery by delving into the subconscious. For example, I'm very much against Freudian approaches to psychology. I think that spending 10 years on the couch of a psychiatrist to discover what was it at the age of one that your parents did to you that might in some shape or form have affected you today is one, a very long-winded way of trying to find out something which is nevertheless not conclusive. And it's knowing it at the end of 10 years with a psychiatrist doesn't allow you necessarily to change it. All you end up doing is saying, well, that's the way I am, I'm stuck with it, and that's it. Uh, I'm a much more behavioralist. And the behavioralist says, I don't need to know why I'm such a rotten person in this regard, but I just have to learn how to behave in a very good way tomorrow. Um, 
it's not important to find the niceties and the the of what caused you to be the way you are, which is speculative. You may or may not get to an answer. You may get to a wrong answer after 10 years anyway. Better still, just know, you hear you've got a manual. It tells you to do A, B, and C tomorrow. Do A, B, and C tomorrow. Cruel approach, which is much more satisfying to my uh, mind. Yeah, no, I, I like what you said about that too, that uh, that Freudian approach is, like, is more of a kind of, Victim, victim kind of mindset, and I, I what I, what I like about, about meditation, it, it's more of a rehearsal process. If in the because a lot of our, a lot of our habits, mm-hmm. a lot of the things we do in a day are subconscious habits. Yeah. You know, so yes. if, I, if I can start my day doing meditation, closing my eyes, and kind of rehearsing how I want to be throughout the day, then I'm, and then I get to the point where I can emotionally feel that or emotionally trick my body into understanding that then and if i stay in that emotion then i can over a time begin to override those subconscious habits so that's absolutely that's very very good yeah that's very good what you say uh but there you have chosen a meditative purpose which is very positive if I were to get up in the morning and spend half an hour focusing on my faults and trying to understand where did they arise from, in which year did they come into being, and were they perhaps from even earlier still, then I'm wasting my time in that half yeah. hour so-called meditative session. So uh-huh. it depends how wisely you choose the meditation as such. But I think even for somebody, to, like if somebody were to start out and just sitting in silence, like after a while, at least, you come to become conscious of that and of those consistent thoughts, 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 you know, to the point that you're like, you can kind of step back a bit and be like, oh, that's interesting, you know, kind of as more of an observer. Yes, but not without guidance, because yeah. I can tell you from my, my own psychological practice of the number of people who, if I allow them to just do exactly what you say, they always end up in the one horrible thought pattern which they have. They can't get their way out of it, and they can't discover how to get out of it. In other words, just sitting doesn't necessarily create a better you or necessarily solve the problem. That's not to say that just sitting isn't good relaxation is fine but it isn't necessarily the alone than answer to things you need to have more you need to, you, need to, you need to get up from your seat and and act that way you need that a, a goal sorry it kind of broke off is that but then you have to know how to act what yeah, yeah, you have to get up from your seat and act, but you have to know how to act, what to act, how to undo it. And yeah, you, you take it for granted. You say, yeah, of course, after sitting there and thinking, contemplating, you'll have the answer. Well, for many people, they don't. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. I, I didn't mean to say it in that kind of uh, taking it for granted way, because it is, yeah, it is a very, it is, it's a very effortful practice. It's not like you do it once. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it takes... A great deal Absolutely. of it. So really, in some in summation, um, what I'm really saying is that, for example, if I were to be 
addressing a Jewish soul. Mm -hmm. And I would say, how do you optimize the way that you express your 120 years in this world? I would say, make sure that you know what to do with your body. Make sure the body is healthy and well. Mm -hmm. Have a goal. And the manual says the 613 mitzvot, which is the 613 ways we connect to life and living, becomes the pathway. And by practicing and practicing and practicing, you optimize your fulfillment and happiness quotient as a consequence. Um, and for a non-Jewish audience, I'll say there are seven basic Noahide laws which determine what is the morality and ethics of all our responses to all life circumstances. And certainly that would be an optimal pathway for spiritual expression in a physical world that we live in today. Mm -hmm. So by way of conclusion, I just want to uh, wish everyone a Shana Tova, obviously. Uh, if this happens to be a, 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 um, shared before Rosh Hashanah, then may this blessing be for everybody. And as such, May everyone have good health, have good spiritual well-being, and please know, every one of your listeners, and yourself obviously included, that every one of us has been brought into the world because we have something individually gifted to contribute. So don't hold back on us. Learn to have your self-esteem to express with courage and conviction. Rabbi, before I ask my final question, which you kind of just touched upon, Shana uh, Tova to yourself as well. Thank you. Um, I'm very, very grateful to be able to, like I mentioned at the beginning, to be able to read your amazing book and how it was given to me uh, from the Chabad Rabbis in Dallas, where I'd spent the past five years. I'm now in Houston. Mm -hmm. But to be able to read the book twice, <laughs> learn about it, and reach out to you and have this platform to be able to speak with you on and learn more and dive more into teachings, uh, I want to really thank you from the bottom of my heart, especially how it's right before Rosh Hashanah. Um, so thank you so much. And I should mention, I'm going to be in the United States uh, on a lecture of St. Cities in November. So uh, feel did, free to look out. It kind of cut off. Where did you say you I'm going to be in the United States in November touring 17 cities giving lectures, so feel free to uh, look out. If you like, I'll send you the itinerary and you can please, please as you do. Please, i best to get there. That okay, awesome. wonderful. My final question is, as you touched upon, what is the gift that you'd like to share with the world? Your unique gift. My unique gift is that I've had the wonderful um, opportunity of being close to the Rebbe who has guided me, and therefore I've become, in my own humble way, a channel for his wisdom and teachings. So I guess what I'm, I would seek a blessing from everybody for me is that I be an effective channel of wisdom that is not mine, but is the Rebbe's and is able to touch anyone who listens to me. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I've it resonates a lot with me because I dove in more into the Rebbe and his teachings myself and getting into the books that are written about him and his different stories. So in a way, being able to talk with you is a connection for me to him. So thank you again. I'm so glad that you got hold of the book. Make sure that when I'm in Texas, I'm actually going to be in Austin. I won't be in Dallas. Oh, perfect. 
I'll be there for sure. Yeah, so uh, I'll let me uh, sign your book. And uh, also the book Practical Kabbalah is available on Amazon very easily. Feel free. How else can uh, people get a hold of you? Um, very easily on my email would be best spiritgrow at labelwolf.com. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to these wonderful gifts, which I hope have brought you some great value. We have many more guests to come and gifts pour over this world. And don't forget, if you have enjoyed any of these episodes or would like to hear some more, please leave me a review on Apple or Anchor Podcast or that little star on Outcast. I'm always looking for topics to learn and talk about, gifts to share, and value to bring to us all. For more updates, check out SolomonEzra.com. You can also sign up for my newsletter about new podcasts and blogs.